You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. We'll get to those stories in just a moment, but first we begin with the latest breaking details of changes by the city of Vancouver that could spell the end of the park board. Our Jordan Armstrong is live in the newsroom with the breaking details. And Jordan, this centers around an announcement tomorrow by Mayor Ken Sim. It does, Sophie. At 10 a.m., the mayor will announce the start of a process to change the park board as we know it. It is the only elected body of its kind in Canada. Whether it will be A, abolished, or B, significantly scaled down in power and scope, We'll find out tomorrow morning. But Global News has learned that fundamentally this is about ultimate accountability resting in the hands of council rather than the current elected board of park commissioners. Making such a drastic change would require several steps. First, there would have to be a vote in council, which would presumably pass, given ABC has the majority. Second, the B.C. government would also have to be involved because this would require changing Vancouver's charter. We've learned there have been some conversations about that between the city and the provincial government. And if council gives the go-ahead, provincial legislation to amend the charter could come in the spring session. Tomorrow's announcement will come just over two weeks after an audit of the park board found gaps in revenue management. As it stands, the board can't spend any money without council's approval. As well, a separate report last year found most of the city's community centers were in poor or very poor condition. Also last year, the Stanley Park train, a park board asset, reached a dangerous level of decay and was ordered to close. It finally reopened in limited operation last week. Now, you might recall before he was elected, Ken Sim vowed to abolish the park board. He then backed away from that, and his party actually ran and elected commissioners. Green Commissioner Tong Digby, Digby rather, remains a defender of the board. He says it would be a petty outcome on the part of the mayor if it were to disappear entirely. Sophie? Well, we'll see if that is indeed what happens. Jordan, thanks for that. Uh, and we'll continue following that story and bring you the details when they become available. No doubt. Okay, family members of a Vancouver woman who died in her downtown apartment say it took authorities three years to notify them and only after they reached out first. The daughters of Lorraine Campbell spoke with our Cassidy Moscone, calling for accountability and compassion for those struggling with addiction. Lorraine Campbell was a mother, a grandmother, and her family loved her. My mum was so beautiful. The 65-year-old struggled with addiction. Her downtown Vancouver home went up in flames after she tragically died by overdose. That was more than three years ago. Her daughters were only notified last week. She was cremated and, bur cremated and buried in a plot with no name. The last three years, she has sat in a plot with no name in an urn. Just because we couldn't be in her life all the time doesn't mean we were, we shouldn't have been given the chance to have a proper goodbye. Lorraine was known to law enforcement. Her daughters were often contacted by police, hospitals and the Ministry of Social Development as next of kin. None of this is hidden information and one simple tiny search could have brought that to light. But because she was a drug addict and because she lived down in the downtown east side, her death was just dismissed. And it's horrible to think that other people that 
are going through the same thing and have huge families that care about them. The coroner's service refused to comment on the specifics of Lorraine's case because the investigation into her death remains open. However, they did say generally it's the responsibility of law enforcement to notify next of kin. In a statement, VPD told Global News officers notified a man who they believed was a relative of Lorraine's but now realise they were wrong and they're reviewing their handling of the matter. Lorraine, devastatingly, not the only life overlooked in BC. In January, the parents of Victoria resident Scott Greer found out their son had passed eight months prior through a Google search. No formal notification. Some people need to be held accountable and we need apologies and I'm hoping that by doing this and bringing her name to the forefront and what happened with her that maybe they won't do it to the next person. Dawn and Sherry now starting the fight to have Lorraine's remains released so they can give her a dignified burial surrounded by family as they wait for answers from government departments who've fallen silent. Cassidy Moscone, Global News. As we head into the winter holiday travel season, memories of last year's disaster at YVR are still fresh. More than a thousand flights delayed or cancelled due to a series of snowstorms stranding hundreds of travellers. But the CEO says they are ready this year. Alyssa Thibault joins us now with more on the new systems in place that will soon be put to the test. Alyssa. Chris, the airport has had a year to look back and review exactly what went wrong just before last Christmas. They've now invested $40 million to improve virtually every operational aspect of the airport. There's more staff, there's improved technology, there's more machinery to deal with ice and snow. The CEO again admitting today that last year's travel chaos was unacceptable. The start of the holidays was anything but happy for thousands of travellers. It's not acceptable at all. I've been crying all day. 13,000 flights cancelled or delayed. Passengers stranded on the tarmac and luggage lost. This year, YVR says they've hired more staff and they're better prepared. The kind of wait times and congestion that we saw last year should not be part of our future. Media were invited for a behind-the-scenes look at operational changes, including technology upgrades to what's called a digital twin, a visual representation of people, equipment, planes, everywhere in the airport, showing delays and problems in real time. And the operations team can access it on their phones. And we can zoom in all the way into the terminal and see what's, uh, what planes are on what gates. To better keep track of luggage, cameras which scan baggage tags have been replaced and upgraded. And there's 19 new pieces of snow clearing equipment, including two snowblowers with double the horsepower of the machines used last year. Crews say they will be able to clear and de-ice a runway in 20 minutes and get to planes faster. We did have sufficient icing, de-icing fluid but it couldn't always get to the aircraft in a timely manner, so we've increased the uh, number of trucks that we have. Last year, passengers were stuck on the tarmac for hours, some in the dark with little to no food. Now the airport has the power to override airlines and tow planes. Airports actually aren't responsible for towing aircraft. Airlines are. 
but they also get disrupted when their uh, teams can't get to work. So we have uh, built redundancy into our systems to allow for uh, us to contract uh, directly with crews to tow aircraft if the airline can't. Of course, we haven't yet had a snowfall, so there's really no way to tell if these changes will make a difference. The test will be when that first big storm finally hits. Chris. All right, All right Alyssa Thibault, thanks very much, Alyssa. Well, it's one of the most popular ride-hailing companies around, and soon it could cost you more to take an Uber in the city of Vancouver. Grace Key is live with more. And Grace, it's not the company considering hiking fees. It's the city. Why is that? Yeah, the city of Vancouver is trying to encourage more people to walk, uh, cycle or take the transit. This fee is actually part of the city's congestion and curbside management permit. Vancouver's Yaletown neighborhood is bustling with restaurants and bars. Not everyone wants to drive to get here. News that fees could be on the rise for ride hailing isn't sitting well with businesses. Inflation's on all-time high right now, so I feel like people are making excuses, more and more excuses not to come out. Uh, so I that would be my number one concern, that they're not going to make it here. The proposed fee increase is part of the congestion and curbside management permit with the city of Vancouver. Fees could go up from 30 cents to 50 cents a ride, similar to Seattle and Portland. The idea is to encourage people to walk, cycle or take transit. The increase is being discussed as part of the city's 2024 budget plan. We're managing the curbside spaces kind of as a, a valuable resource. Uh, and to the extent that, uh, that that fee kind of helps us manage that in either designating more space for that activity uh, or just kind of in managing enforcement around it. According to Uber, Vancouver already has the highest ride hailing fees in the country for a round trip total fees are $1.60. That could increase to $2 next year. Other cities are 45 cents or lower. We believe that there will be tens of thousands of fewer trips on the road due to this increased fee. You're now looking at almost $2 per, per round trip. And already Vancouver residents are paying the highest rideshare fees in Canada, four times higher than any other city in the country. The fees are in effect between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. The proposal is to extend those hours to 10 p.m. Uber says that hurts the nighttime economy. Mothers Against Drunk Driving is also concerned about the changes. Anytime we talk about increasing fees or making it more difficult for people to access those services, we run the risk of unintentionally raising the chances of people being, you know, using their own cars, making the wrong choices, which I think is a, is a bad result for all of us. All right, Grace, what about the timing of this? When will we know if it'll pass? Well, this is all part of the city of Vancouver's capital and operating budget for 2024. So there will be some discussion and a decision is scheduled for December 12th. Sophie. All right. Thanks for that. Grace Key reporting in Vancouver. Of course, the holiday season is all about the joy of giving, but there are a lot of Grinches out there very good at taking. Janet Brown has some tips now from the experts to protect yourself from those porch pirates. It is the busiest time of the year for companies like FedEx. This is our Super Bowl. This is what we call our peak season. They're rolling containers with packages purchased online out of planes. We can offload that aircraft in about 26 minutes. And into warehouses, where the packages are sorted 
and loaded onto trucks for delivery. But it's when the parcel arrives at your front door that things sometimes go wrong. Let's do a present to Mr. Grinch. You order that Christmas gift and uh, you expect it on your front porch and it's gone. You know, it would be so easy for someone just to come and take this. Crime Stoppers reminding people not to leave parcels stacking up at the door to only get stolen by porch pirates. They oftentimes follow delivery trucks and steal your goods. So please, please make sure that if you aren't going to be home when your goods arrive, to make alternate arrangements to get your parcels picked up. It literally takes seconds for them to grab that package and walk away. Surrey RCMP say there's been an uptick in stolen packages from porches in the last two weeks. Shopping goes up, packages are, more packages are arriving, and therefore these people are also looking for those opportunities. And if you are the victim of a porch pirate? Your first course of action is to call the police, speak with the merchant who you bought the shipment from. They will work with FedEx and we will all cooperate to, to make things right for you. But ultimately, this is a thing that could be avoided. If you are an online shopper and you won't be home when the package is set to arrive, another suggestion, consider an alternate shipping address. <laughs> Janet Brown, Global News. Well, the conflict in the Middle East is spilling over into B.C. with the number of hate-motivated incidents escalating in the weeks since Hamas launched its attack on Israel. The latest incident caught on video comes just as the Jewish community prepares to mark the start of Hanukkah on Thursday. Kristen Robinson has more. Palestine will be free. This Tensions between pro-Palestine protesters and Israel supporters spilling over onto public transit. Transit police say this video only shows a small glimpse of a heated exchange on the Canada line November 12th, a day Vancouver saw multiple demonstrations. Transit police spoke to those involved and say their investigation determined no threats of violence or physical assault occurred. Oh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. In Victoria Sunday, video captured a man driving onto the sidewalk and nearly hitting a pro-Palestine protester outside the B.C. legislature. After confronting another protester, the driver was arrested for assault with a weapon. No charges have been laid. I will say to my friends in the Muslim community, we have no interest in you being targeted in any way, and anybody who does that is not standing with us. In the face of increasing tensions between both sides of the Middle East conflict, Vancouver's Jewish community not standing down as it prepares to mark the start of Hanukkah, the annual tradition of lighting the menorah set for Thursday evening in front of the art gallery. Will the VPD be stepping up security? Yeah, so we will have officers on site. We know since October 7th, there has been an increase in concerns throughout the community. So as such, we will have officers on scene to provide a sense of reassurance, a sense of safety. Ezra Shankin says it's okay to disagree on important issues. He's challenging everyone to do it in a civil way that doesn't make others feel unsafe. It's time for us to denounce the extremists within our midst and to tell them that it's enough. Enough is enough. We should be able to come together and unite around light and around love during a difficult time, and we stand ready to do that. Kristen Robinson, Global News.
It's going to be quite a tribute to Canada's soccer hero. Christine Sinclair is about to get the send-off she deserves. The stadium renamed in her honour to recognize her last game playing for this country. A lot of love for a legend coming up next on the NewsHour. Even if it's not the world's largest, I don't see why it should come down. The Cowichan Valley loses bragging rights with a big decision to make about its giant hockey stick. Also coming up, Buddy the Elf says the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. But these new compass cards are pretty cool too. We'll show you where to get them a little later. First though, BC's soccer phenom Christine Sinclair is being honoured at BC Place tonight, which for one night only has been renamed Christine Sinclair Place for her final Team Canada match. It's an awesome logo, you've got to admit it. Aaron MacArthur is live with more on the soccer legend and the love she's feeling tonight. Aaron. Yeah, talk about feeling the love. There were thousands of people here on Terry Fox Plaza hours before the game just to get a chance to see the Canadian national team roll off the bus into Christine Sinclair Place. And of course, the biggest cheers reserved for Cincy herself. The game, a friendly with Australia, has all the buzz of a World Cup qualifier. There are 45,000 people expected here tonight to catch the game. I've talked to fans from all over North America, people from Toronto, Lethbridge, San Diego. Fans from her Portland Thorns team arrived tonight to watch and pay tribute to Christine Sinclair. All of them thrilled to be here and the role she's played in worldwide sports since she first put on the Maple Leaf. She really has inspired me because I play soccer as well. And so she's inspired me and most of my teammates to play as hard as we can. I've been following her since I started when I was three years old, which is the year she started on the national team. And yeah, we actually flew all the way from Ontario to be here. It's amazing. I, I'm, I'm sad, but I'm, I'm happy for her. But I'm going to cry tonight. I know I will. Yeah, you get that sense of that bittersweet nature of this game. Really excited. The fans are really excited to see Christine Sinclair and the Canadian national team play. But, you know, there's some kids we spoke to that haven't known the Canadian national team without number 12 on the field, and things are going to be different going forward. So it'll be a good night. I'm sure everyone will enjoy it. Chris, Sophie. Christine says she's playing with no pressure now, so it should be a good performance, let's hope, tonight. Thanks, Aaron. Well, the world's largest hockey stick is for sale. The 62-meter structure was built for Expo 86 and has become one of the most recognizable symbols of the Cowichan Valley. Now, though, it has reached the end of its life. But as Kylie Stanton reports, not everyone is ready to say goodbye. Players battle it out on the ice looking for a win. But it's something outside the arena that holds the title. There it is, the world's largest hockey stick. At nearly 62 and a half meters long and weighing more than 28,000 kilograms, it's a giant reminder of which sport comes first in this country. But like all hockey greats, the time has come to retire. It's old now and it's reached uh, the, a stage where we can't um, refurbish or replace it without a, a huge amount of expense. The Douglas fir structure is waterlogged and rotting in some places. I can see one, two, three, four, 
six at least woodpecker holes. On top of that, the American city of Lockport, Illinois, is planning to build a new arena with an even bigger stick, more than 76 meters in length, what would easily become the new Guinness World Record. And so they let the community decide. Well, we asked them if they were prepared to spend some money. We also asked if it was important as a community attraction. Of the roughly 3,000 respondents, 70% felt it was time to raise the stick to the hockey rafters. With a price tag to keep it pegged at one and a half to $2 million, it fell victim to the city's salary cap. Like most cities in Canada, you know, we have uh, homelessness issues, uh, addiction issues. Obviously, we're dealing with taxpayer money here. The hockey stick was originally made for the entrance to the Canadian Pavilion at Expo 86 in Vancouver. It was moved to Duncan in 1988 after the city won a Canada-wide competition to acquire it. Three and a half decades later, it won't be easy to say goodbye. I don't think it should come down. I think it's... Uh... It's been in this community all these years. I've grown up with it and uh, uh, I have fond memories of it. The Cowichan Valley Regional District is now accepting proposals from the community to take the stick and repurpose the wood. The plan is to begin decommissioning the piece in early 2024. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A lot of people want a piece of it, no doubt about it. Well, coming up, addressing the crisis in healthcare, the hiring blitz that's trying to fix a system on life support. Plus, how salmon farmers explain a large herring die-off connected to open net pens. Traffic is steady both ways at the Portman Bridge this evening. The issue is actually a stalled vehicle before the bridge deck, eastbound on Highway 1 on the Coquitlam side in the HOV lane. Contact Kermac for expert windshield repair and replacement services while supporting Kermac Cares for Kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services, and that's no accident. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. BC's health minister says major strides are being made in the first year of the province's billion-dollar multi-year initiative to hire more doctors, nurses, and other health care professionals. But as Richard Zussman reports, the demands on the system are still outpacing the record-setting recruitment. It's a code orange for health care due to a lack of staff. We have to do more and more and more. 38,000 in my first five years, 38,000 in the next five years. The province attempting to resuscitate a system on life support. Just this year, 6,258 nurses have been hired in the province, 660 international medical graduate doctors have been added to the system, and 61 new oncologists have a new job. We have to meet the test, and that test is twofold. One of a growing population and one of an aging population. And one of, uh, of needs, and frankly right now, needs that come out of the pandemic. BC's population grew by more than 150,000 people last year. Some of those people, healthcare professionals. But the vast, vast majority aren't. It's a challenge, 250,000 people. If you think of a family practice having 1,250 people attached to it, that's 200 family doctors just for the new people coming to the province. Nurses have long argued they historically have been understaffed, arguing the new jobs are registered nurses, not necessarily hired ones. And the jobs help, but don't fill the long-standing void. We are still experiencing a critical nursing shortage. There are vacancies in, in every facility 
uh, across the province. The province is waiving upfront application assessment fees for internationally educated nurses and easing some of the regulatory assessment requirements. But many that have been in the system a long time are burned out and leaving. Nurses continue to do the very best that they can to deliver the care in this province, but it is at a cost and it's at a cost of nurses. And this burnout is leading to a struggle to deliver results. The minister routinely fails to acknowledge the devastating circumstances that many people in British Columbia are feeling. The next step on the billion dollar staffing plan is establishing a pool of traveling nurses with hope that until then, overworked nurses don't travel right out of the profession. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. BC's salmon farming industry is taking heat after a major kill of herring near the farms last year. New technology that removes parasites is being blamed for the accidental deaths. But as Catherine Urquhart reports, the salmon farming industry says that technology has already been fixed. The videos are graphic and alarming, showing countless dead herring, many with their eyes blown out. The images were taken off the west coast of Vancouver Island near Clayquot Sound by the group Clayquot Action. Also released, Fisheries and Oceans data, which shows BC salmon farms killed more than 800,000 wild fish in 2022, nearly five times as many as the previous year. For the uh, net pen uh, fish farms, I think it's safe to say that the social license uh, for those uh, that just sit in the ocean and, uh, and cause the death of other fish uh, is expired in British Columbia. We know that those have to move into closed containment systems. The BC Salmon Farmers Association is offering this explanation. Uh, this incident that happened over a year ago uh, was the result of uh, one, one area where we had a, just a tremendous number of juvenile uh, herring uh, attracted to the structures of the farm and uh, got caught up in some pumps. The organization Watershed Watch says the herring were sucked into a machine meant to remove sea lice from farm salmon. And now they're, we're seeing that they're inadvertently killing herring, a foundational species in the marine food web. The sector has been uh, working with new technologies uh, to combat sea lice, uh, some of which involve uh, um, uh, moving the fish either through baths or through um, uh, water jets. And because of the large number of herring that were there on, on that occasion, uh, they got pulled into the equipment. The equipment has subsequently and been, the equipment and the procedures have subsequently been modified. The federal government has committed to removing open net salmon farms from BC waters by 2025. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The Coast Guard is investigating a possible fuel spill in False Creek. Reports were first received Monday evening about a smell of diesel near Granville Island and Science World. A drone has been brought in to assess the non-recoverable rainbow sheen, but a source has not been confirmed. The Coast Guard is now working with the city and province to determine if the pollutant has simply been washed into the waterway by Monday's heavy rains. Up next, destruction caused by construction. Structural engineer is reviewing that damage. The building site that's shaking things up a little too much in downtown Kelowna. Plus, the GoFundMe website reveals the most generous cities in Canada. And you might be amazed how many are here in BC.
steady in both directions at the Patello Bridge right now, but keep in mind there will be overnight lane closures for construction later on. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $25 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. More controversy surrounding a major construction project in downtown Kelowna as tenants of a nearby commercial building have been forced out. Construction of UBC Okanagan's downtown tower has been blamed for causing damage to nearby buildings over the past several months. Now it has forced the evacuation of a building just south of the site. Structural damage was discovered inside and outside the building, prompting the city to issue a do not occupy order. A structural engineer is reviewing that damage and they will be making a determination about uh, the extent of the damage and whether or not the building is safe to occupy. We're keeping an eye on it and we've noticed all, uh, let all the residents know about the, uh, what's happening and, and, and what they should keep an eye out for in their apartments and in the common areas. The construction includes the deepest excavation in the city's history, a pit about five stories deep for an underground parkade. It's that excavation work that's believed to be causing the damage. Well, British Columbians are a very giving bunch all year long. Several cities in our province topping GoFundMe's annual list of the most generous communities in Canada. And Angela Jung spoke with one Vancouver business owner who credits donations from the fundraising website with keeping her cafe alive. It's the perfect feline paradise. Katoro Cat Cafe opened before the pandemic, and earlier this year, it almost didn't survive. We had um, a significant amount of debt accrued, and really the only way that we saw a path to be able to stay open and help you know, rescue more cats in need was by running a GoFundMe. Anna Van Egan made a public plea for help. And in one week, more than $100,000 were raised, saving the business and cats waiting for adoption. Earlier this year, we adopted out our 1,000th cat, uh, which was an amazing milestone for us. People in B.C. seem most willing to open their wallets. According to a new list released by GoFundMe, eight of the ten most generous Canadian communities are in B.C. The two others are in Ontario. Nanaimo, Victoria, Prince George, North Vancouver, Vancouver, New Westminster, Kelowna and Maple Ridge all made the list. The data speaks for it themselves. We, we, we don't know why. It's just extraordinary that it's so weighted heavily towards BC. He says there's been a variety of campaigns and many people rallied around those trying to recover from the devastating wildfires in the Okanagan. We are facing uncertain times, but Canadians are still giving. Back at Kitaro, the owners hope people will give once more. After the success of the last GoFundMe, Katoro has launched another campaign. This time, it's to expand the operations to help adopt more cats like this one. So much generosity has come from our community, and we are just so deeply grateful for everyone. That generosity has kept the business and dream alive while finding Forever Homes. Angela Jung, Global News. So cute. So cute, that's right. Coming up, putting a face to a famous voice. Whoa there, Pteranodon family. From Dinosaur Train to the Overwatch video games and many other productions, chances are you've heard him somewhere.
Also ahead, 20 years after Elf was first released, how TransLink is honoring this Christmas classic. Thankfully, I avoided all the giant puddles on the way home last night. How did you do that? By steering around yeah. them. <laughs> did anybody else? I did not. I did impossible. not. <laughs> Me neither. You know, there, I was driving with my little ones and they couldn't believe the amount of rain that was coming down. Yeah, so it was about a 24-hour period, yeah, sort of later yesterday into the overnight. And some areas saw such substantial amount of rainfall that um, we were sort of in that 90-millimeter mark. And I'll show you more on that, but this is that atmospheric river there. Thankfully, it only impacted us for 24 hours. In 2021, when we had the atmospheric rivers, it was a three-day event where we had 100 and 100 and 100 in some areas. So thankfully, 24 hours. It brought windy conditions as well and very mild. Boy, rain right up into the mountains. But these are some of the top numbers. Porto Cove getting 91 millimeters of rain in that period. And you can see far a little bit less in through White Rock. Nonetheless, this is a substantial fall storm, that's for sure. And we still have flood uh, watches in effect. You can see it in orange. And then the yellows are high stream flow advisory. So steer clear of rivers and streams. Now, that atmospheric river is still impacting the southeastern corner of our province. So we still have a few areas with uh, rainfall warnings in place. But into tomorrow, we'll ease off across the south coast. We still do have a slight chance of showers in the morning, but a main impact will be in the Kootenai area. But generally, Thursday, we'll see a clearing trend. But by late Thursday for south coast area, we're right back into periods of rain. In the meantime, this is your Wednesday. So we'll see sunshine across northern regions, but the southeastern corner of the province, particularly the Kootenai region, continuing with periods of rain for you. We do have a chance of showers mainly through the Fraser Valley for the south coast, but otherwise some nice sunshine for you across Vancouver Island. Not as much sunshine for Metro Vancouver, though. And again, by afternoon hours on Thursday, it looks like we're back into periods of rain. Some nice sunshine, though, in store for us on Friday. All right, tonight's central windows weather window. Coming to you from Richmond, and I kind of like this shot. It was a bit eerie looking with that fog off in the distance, but it's a perfect late fall photo and definitely uh, in behind that rainfall. That's sort of what we saw today. Okay, back to you two. It's moody. Mm -hmm. Leanne has an mm -hmm. eye for the dramatic. Thank you, Christy. Thanks, Christy. Well, TransLink is launching new limited edition compass cards to mark the 20th anniversary of an iconic holiday film. The new cards are inspired by Buddy the Elf from the holiday movie Elf, starring Will Ferrell. A total of 1,200 of the themed collectible cards will be part of a limited release tomorrow. If you're hoping to snag one of the four limited edition cards, they're going to be sold at a pop-up shop at Granville Skytrain Station from 11 a.m. until 7 p.m. or until they sell out. We're offering these compass bundles for $34.99 each. With that, you get one compass card, and there are four different ones to choose from, and that also includes a collectible wooden postcard. So we're limiting it to four cards for bundles, if you will, per customer, just to make sure we get a chance for everyone to, uh, to get a fair uh, shot at it. A small number of the collectible Compass cards will also be available online through TransLink, but pro tip, get there early if you want them. They sell out fast. What will be the biggest seller when it's all said and done? Um, Taylor Swift, Bright Nights, or the Elf Compass Oh, card? Very good question. It'll be a tight race. Tay's, mm -hmm. Tay's going to be big. <laughs> and it's appropriate that it's Elf because about 75% of that movie was filmed in Vancouver.
Yeah, and you're Even working, you're working on a story York. about that, yes, aren't you? We'll have a story next week about that. I mean, the movie was set in Vancouver in the North Pole, but most set in New York in the North Pole, but most of it was done here. Cool. All right, tonight's uh, Canucks Devils Games has been taken over by the Hughes Corporation. Luke, Jack, and Quinn. I think we've kind of just, you know, been trying to treat it like another game. I know those guys are too. Like, they're not trying to hoop it up or anything. Oh, it's not another game. Quinn has never played an NHL game against Luke right there, but he has played a number of games against his middle brother, Jack. Very cool. Also tonight... Hey, whoa, don't shoot! The creative life of Ian James Corlett and how it all started with a dream to be Steven Spielberg. What did you call it? Stadium Row? Stadium mm -hmm. Row. Two stadiums in a row, BC Place and Rogers Arena. And both full tonight. Exactly, both full. Uh, and unless something really unexpected happens, the two games the Vancouver Canucks and New Jersey Devils play against each other every season will be the ones circled on the calendar of Jim and Ellen Hughes because that's when their boys, Quinn, Jack, and Luke, can be on the same sheet of ice in the NHL regular season and not just on the same sheet of ice when they train in the summer back home in Michigan. Without a doubt, the marquee matchup in the National Hockey League tonight is here at Rogers Arena. The New Jersey Devils and Vancouver Canucks facing off. National Hughes League, you could call it. First time ever that older brother Quinn will go against his younger brothers Jack and Luke. And also just the ninth time in league history that three brothers have been on the ice. The Stahl brothers, Eric, Mark and Jordan, the last to do that. Yeah, it probably is, um, you know, big for the family, but we haven't really, uh, you know, dressed it up. I think we've kind of just, you know, been trying to treat it like another game. I know those guys are too, like they're not trying to hoop it up or anything. And um, yeah, same thing for me that, you know, they need points. And, uh, you know, we'd like to, you know, keep it going. Well, I think it's great for hockey. I mean, you know, look at the, the talent of those three guys. Um, it's incredible. And um, I think everybody's excited to see, you know, they, they got some, they're competitive brothers. I mean, they, I mean, yeah, they're brothers, but they want to showcase their talents tonight. So that we just got to be careful that, you know, they don't try to outdo each other and they're just zipping around. Um, but for me, that um, how close they are as brothers and how, much they love each other and how much they want each other to do so well is, is really the story for me. It's, it's a very close-knit family. We're truly talking about a gifted family here. Quinn leads all NHL defensemen and goal scored, and he's also tied for points with Kale McCarr. Jack Hughes is the NHL leader for points per game. He's averaging just a smidge under two a game, while the youngest of them all, Luke, is second in rookie scoring. Yeah, to have three, three kids that are incredibly gifted uh, offensively skating wise you know I think you got to be a skater first in this league they're all incredible skaters and then to, to have the puck skills that they do it tells you a lot about the high-end talent that you know is coming into the league uh, at an at a early age yeah I think it'll be pretty cool I think um, you know it's dedication to our family and uh, how hard they've worked and um, you know it'll be pretty cool for the three of us pretty cool moment but at the end of the day we need it's a big two points we need I do know that tonight's going to be a really good game. You know, I think I said it the other day, it was probably the first time where both our teams uh, are really competitive. So I think tonight's really exciting and hopefully uh, like stakes are like this for the next bunch of years. So it's the Devils tonight and Carolina Hurricanes on Thursday with your ringside report, Jay Janower, 
Global Sports. And that practice facility for the practice uh, tape you saw with the New Jersey Devils, you might have recognized somebody because forgotten in this Hughes Brothers family reunion is the return of Travis Green to Rogers Arena because he is now an assistant coach for the Devils and he's someone Rick Tockett knows very well. Yeah, I'm, a, you know, he's one of my closest friends. I think he's a hell of a coach. You know, I'm glad he's back in. You know, it's been a while. Smart guy. Um, you know, it's a good acquisition for New Jersey. Um, he's got a lot to add. So hopefully he gets a, another kick at the can. I think he deserves it. Canada and Australia will start at 7 o'clock. Christine Sinclair's final game for Canada. Also Abbotsford's Sophie Schmidt, her final game as well. And it's not just goals where Sinclair leads. This will be her 331st game for Canada, which is way ahead of everybody else, although Schmidt is second on that list at 226. Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback Trevor Lawrence has a high ankle sprain after being stepped on by his own offensive lineman last night. He was helped off the field to the locker room. The Jags say it's too early to tell if he can play this weekend or even be a backup. And if he can't dress in that game, then I'm thinking Nathan Rourke would get called up from the Jaguars practice roster, and he would be the backup quarterback for C.J. Beathard, who would start instead of Lawrence. Let's hope he gets some playing time. Thanks, Squire. Up next, the man behind the voice, how you'll probably recognize Ian James Corlett without ever laying eyes on him. This is BC is brought to you by Johnston Meyer Insurance Agency's group. 50 years of trust in your community. Jordan Armstrong is standing by in our newsroom now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan. Chris will have a full wrap-up from Christine Sinclair Place as the superstar plays her final game for Team Canada. Also, Philip, come on down. The American retiree who lost a game on The Price is Right, in which the prize was a trip to New Westminster, is arriving there tonight. He may not have won on the game show, but the local tourism association tracked him down and gave him the all-expenses vacation anyway and there's a big party to welcome him our camera is there and we'll have a full report at 11 chris seeing the very best of our region thanks a lot jordan a long lost film from high school has inspired a local voice actor to step out of the shadows and put a human face to the characters he's played ian james corlett is the inspiration behind the classic being ian and has voiced other iconic characters too but as jay durant shows us in this is bc it all started at burnaby south high school the year was 1980 and a young aspiring filmmaker was cutting his teeth with a project at his high school, Burnaby South. I wanted to be Spielberg. I wanted to be a film director. So I went to my guidance counselor and I said, you know what this school needs? You need a promotional film. Now we see here that Jonathan Swift... Ian James Corlett took a deep dive into the archives and re-released this vintage production. Hey, a flashback to his introductory years in the entertainment world that morphed into something completely different. Whoa there, Pteranodon family. For three and a half decades, Corlett has been bringing life to countless characters, from TV series and feature films to video games. You just point the thing and pull the trigger a bunch, right? I've been really fortunate. I've, I've voiced uh, some really iconic characters. Just give me a second to get my briefcase. Leave the briefcase. Be 
It's been a successful run that's also allowed him to showcase his hometown. Many will remember his show Being Ian with scenes set around Burnaby, including his father's store, Music Man Pianos on Kingsway. We basically grew up in a piano store, and we all worked there. You hear that? Probably just some loose lug nuts. In a cameo by Canucks Trevor Linden. Sharp shooting! He was actually a, a good actor. He really got it. You look sluggish, buddy. How about I scramble you up some eggs? As the credits have piled up over the years, there's one project that completely fell off the radar. A film that helped kickstart a long career. It's a huge walk down memory lane for anyone in that era. Even if nobody's ever seen it until now. I don't think they ever showed it. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. Jay Durant, Global News. And don't forget to email your story ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Going to be a wild environment down at Christine Sinclair Place tonight, Squire. And Rogers Arena. Yeah, same. It's all going on. I have to take a different route home then. Be, be very <laughs> careful. you got to go right through there, don't you? <laughs> I'll go around. Stay out until about 11 o'clock, then everything will be That's clear. a good call. Okay. Down by then. All right, thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night.